run a, a teeny bit over. Um, and uh, I once spent a summer in Indianapolis, so I knew not to wear a jacket. And uh, I just I hope you'll excuse me for the lack of formal dress here uh, among my colleagues. My name's David Young, and I'm the director of Cliveden, which is a National Trust historic site in the Germantown section of Philadelphia. And uh, I'm uh, quite honored to be a uh, chair of this session with my excellent colleagues, three of which come from the National Trust Historic Sites and one of which comes from my community in Philadelphia. Uh, and what we're going to talk about is uh, how house museums aren't dead yet. And often uh, at uh, AAM conferences or AASLH conferences, we've heard about the death knells of the house museum and how house museum essentially rhymes with mausoleum. And uh, we'd like to, to indicate that, in fact, much of what uh, the, the record shows from some of the house museums that we're associated with. All right, you're recording. Gotcha. Uh, much of what uh, our experience has been is that, in fact, house museums and historic sites are very vibrant leaders in their communities. And I'd like to show some instances how. Uh, first of all, I'd like to provide a bit of a scenario of the Historic House Museum field and then very quickly show you a little bit about the experience of our site, which was uh, Cliveden, which was struggling a few years ago to reach an audience and uh, to have a grasp of its mission uh, and what we've done and some of the results and lessons we've learned. And then I'll turn it over to Sandra Smith from Villa Finale uh, in San Antonio, Texas, and uh, who will talk a little bit about how they're in the planning stages of a new house museum and how they're learning ways of community engagement even in their planning phases, and they'll be soon to open in October. Stenton in North Philadelphia has provided leadership in education, which has built into larger elements of consortium building within the very rich historic house museum community in Philadelphia. Uh, Bruce Moore and Jim Kern will uh, talk about uh, the leadership during a, a severe crisis in last year's flood in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, one of the many things that Bruce Moore can talk about. And then finally, George McDaniel will talk about Drayton Hall and its experience uh, in leading um, a, a group against a very heavy development project that would threaten the environs surrounding Drayton Hall. Uh, and my colleagues are among the best in the field, and it's quite an honor to be here with them. Um, uh, Sandra Smith is the, uh, uh, is the director of Villa Finale, the, the first ever director of Villa Finale. Prior to that, she was the John and Neville Bryant Curator of Collections for the National Trust for Historic Preservation, and she has an MA from George Washington University. Uh, Dennis Pickerel will follow. Dennis uh, has a, uh, an MA in American Studies from Penn State, and he's been with Stenton now for three years. He's been the director of Stenton uh, for one year, and he will talk about history hunters and the consortium building that Stenton has led. It's a National uh, Society for Colonial Dames site in North Philadelphia. Jim Kern uh, has been the director of Bruce Moore since 2007. He was the assistant director uh, since 2002. He brings a wealth of experience as an educator, a caterer, and an actor. Uh, uh, and his master's degree is from the University of Illinois, uh, Chicago Circle. And, uh, and George McDaniel uh, barely needs an introduction. He's a PhD from Duke. He's been the director of Drayton Hall since 1989, and he's all over the program, uh, as is his site. So uh, let me just say that we're not dead yet, and, uh, and I'd like to make that case for you today. 
Um, the session goals are to talk about the state of the field and introduce you to some of the elements of the Kikit conference, which was held last year, and the alternatives we find to the refrain that house museum rhymes with mausoleum, uh, and elements of how place-based preservation, which is really what we've been at uh, for a while, place-based preservation programs can work in very different contexts, urban contexts, uh, uh, suburban contexts, and uh, contexts in environmental environs, and some of the lessons that we've learned in adapting our sites and our programs and our staffs and our boards to the community needs that we face. And many of these needs are agreed-upon needs, but some of them are crisis needs. Um, the Kikit Conference and the recommendations that came out of it have been very significant for the House Museum's field. This was a conference held in 2007. Kikit is one of the National Trust Historic Sites that is an alternative use site. It's, it's, it's a house museum as well as a conference center. And, uh, and it involved this list of individuals, uh, many of whom are here today, people like David Donath uh, and uh, George was there. Terry Davis, among many others, and it presented a, a list of findings about house museums and historic sites uh, because of the, the large issues that historic sites are, are, are facing. There was a Kaike conference in 2002, and it's fair to say that there was a, a group that didn't really uh, see the need for such a conference. In 2007, there was a wide consensus that such a conference was absolutely critical to our work. And uh, um, some of the sites, uh, um, the recommendations from it uh, were published in last year's spring issue of the National Trust Forum Journal, which has a picture of Bruce Moore. Uh, and uh, uh, the subject was America's Historic Sites at a Crossroads. It is the single largest selling issue of the 20-year history of the National Trust Forum Journal, testifying to the critical state of historic sites in America. Uh, and there's a number of issues relevant to uh, what we're presenting today, including an article about what my site went through. Um, we're also here to say that uh, some of our uh, presentation, uh, which uh, in an earlier version was at the American Association of Museums last year, will be in the next issue of the AASLH Journal History News. And so in September, you'll be able to hear about Drayton Hall and Villa Finale and Stenton and Cliveden as well. So there will be some other ways to get what we're saying here today. But some of the findings from the Kikit conference are important. They included things like attendance is not the most valid measure of the positive impact that historic sites have and, and the experience of historic sites. In other words, heritage tourism isn't the only way to measure things. Secondly, the buildings, the landscapes, the collections are a means but not the ends of our work at historic sites. Uh, another key finding was ex innovation, experimentation, collaboration, uh, broad sharing of the resulting information are essential to achieving sustainability, the key word in historic sites these days. And to achieve a sustainability in a large level means working together, sharing results. Uh, we're, none of us have, us have this figured out yet, and sharing the results is essential. Uh, and some of the recommendations included uh, we must no longer think of the Velvet Rope Tour as the core program at historic sites. And we have to generate more and varied ways to utilize our remarkable resources, our incredible assets, some of America's richest collections are at these sites to enrich people's lives. 
the historic site community must also reaffirm the importance of these places, not only for our nation's future, but we also must look at our organization's futures in terms of what the long term really is about the meaning of our sites. Historic sites show people the meaning of where they live, and it is up to us to suggest ways and create ways that engage people in the significance that we present at each of our sites. This is Cliveden. How many of you have been to Cliveden? How many of you have been to Cliveden? Uh, it's Cliveden on Cliveden Street, and I like to think if we do our jobs right, it'll ultimately be Cliveden on Cliveden Street. The neighbors know it as the Chew Mansion on Cliveden Street. The trust has insisted we call it its historic name, Cliveden. Uh, it's a 1767 house for the wealthiest man in Pennsylvania, a summer house. It was the scene of a revolutionary battle. There's blood on the walls. There's uh, bullet holes. It, uh, 152 Americans died trying to get the British out of this house. It was lived in by the Chews until 1972 when it was donated to the National Trust, and it is run by a nonprofit organization known as Cliveden Inc., uh, the, the Battle of Germantown was the only battle in the city that gave the world the Declaration of Independence, and these are two images of the most significant thing to happen at Cliveden. Uh, Cliveden also has a significant collection of furnishings, including the ever-popular Affleck sofa, the single most valuable artifact in the entire collection of the National Trust for historic preservation. Uh, people come from all over the country to see it, and too often... In the history of Cliveden, it's been all about the sofa. And it's not about the sofa anymore. And I'd like to tell you that because this is how the community has seen Cliveden. Behind a gate, somewhere in the back there, and only about the battle. Not about the six acres of beautiful environs. Not about the influence of the Jews in the preservation of Philadelphia, such as Independence Hall. And uh, we're in a population in Germantown. It's six miles north of the center city. This is Germantown here. It's a, uh, a minority community, uh, and uh, it's 25% uh, is at or below the poverty line. Uh, over 10,000 uh, homes are over 75 years old. And too often, there's not been people working together. There are 14 house museums, uh, nine community development corporations, 52 community groups, in a community of 40, 43,000 people. And this is not unusual. I spent a week of my life in Nebraska City, Nebraska, where there are nine house museums in a community of 15,000 people. Working together is going to be something we have to learn together. Um, Cliveden changed its mission recently to essentially not be about the sofa, but to be about the community. And one of the reasons was Across the street from Cliveden, a house museum, Uppsala, went out of business. Uppsala was a historic house where nothing historic happened. And it, and it, sing, it went down to single digits in visitation un, until uh, 2003 when the board voted to merge. And in effect, succeeded in its mission. Because it merged with Cliveden and ensured the preservation of its building. The first sentence in its, pre, in its mission is preservation. So some could say it failed, but others could say it succeeded in finding an alternate use to preserve the building. And uh, we're now in the business of renovating it and bringing it to life as a central port of Cliveden's uh, in, um, operations. Um, and it resulted in a new mission. Essentially, Cliveden took visitor out of its equation 
and tried to look at what would it be if visitor wasn't in the equation. And what it would be is a, a site providing leadership for its community. If the neighborhood fails and Cliveden succeeds, we lose. And that's sort of like the Chesapeake Bay Museum, that if the museum thrives and the bay fails, they lose. And the only way Cliveden can thrive is if the community is engaged, and this historic community really provides an opportunity for history to play a lead role. And uh, Dennis will talk a little bit more about that. And therefore, the, the next Cliveden mission is about preservation in action in its neighborhood, about education, about our common heritage, because as historic as Germantown has been, it's not been a shared history. And part of our work is to combine for a, a more of a shared history and also to be about community engagement. And rather than thinking about the battle, it's not thinking about 1777, 24-7. It's not about the sofa. Some of the lessons we've learned in the three and a half years since we've adopted this new mission is that we have to be the traditional house museum plus. In other words, we have to do what we do well, scientifically preserve the building, interpret with guided tours at the top of the freshest information and research, and we have to be engaged in the right kinds of uh, community partnerships to make this happen, as well as all the other things we need to do. So um, what's been encouraging is board giving has been up, donations have been up, and the, about five years ago, 3,000 people came to visit Cliveden, the House Museum, and now 18,000 people are served by Cliveden in our after-school programs, in our jazz concerts, in our varieties of partnerships. I'm one of the founders of a business improvement district right outside our gates to help the commercial corridor outside the avenue, and we're doing a lot more in different ways to be higher profile with more of history in a lead role and as a verb, not just a place behind the gate. The continued evaluation is absolutely necessary to learn our impact, and broad commitment is essential. We have to have staff devoted to this, guides who welcome members of the community rather than say, oh my God, what are you doing here? And we have to have the right tone set by the board. The whole organization sets the tone. And it, it also means interpretation with its, within its broadest possible context as connective tissue bridging gaps between mission and agreed-upon community needs. In other words, a shared history as much as we can. That's hard to do, but communities can, especially with historic sites in their communities. It's not about 7077, 24-7. It's not about the sofa. So um, I encourage you to come visit us, especially after you hear all the great things going on in Germantown. Now I'm going to turn it over to Sandra Smith, who's learned a lot of the Kikit lessons as they prepare to open the next uh, um, trust site, Villa Finale. And I'm going to turn up her uh, right now. Thank you. Oh, God. That color looked a lot more attractive on my desktop. <laughs> it's like lime green. Um, I'm Sandra Smith. I'm the director at Villa Finale. Um, and just give you a little bit of background on the site before I tell you what we've been working on. Um, Villa Finale is an 1876 uh, Italianate mansion in the King William Historic District in San Antonio. 
Um, it was the home of Walter Nold Mathis, who was a lifelong San Antonio resident and community leader. Um, he bought this house in 1967 when it was a rooming house. There were eight, eight apartments in there. And this and many of the other large houses in San Antonio at the time were uh, other boarding houses and in a real state of disrepair. Um, as I said, he bought it in 67, and he spent about 18 months restoring it before he moved in. And we just found the, I just found these pictures. The staff knew about them. Um, so before and afters that Mr. Mathis took um, from the same angle. So I think these are really cool. So 68 and, uh, 67 and 68, um, just to give you a little. These are Polaroids. They didn't scan very well. Um, that's actually a green room. <laughs> that's the tower. Um, and to give you an idea of what the neighborhood was looking like at the time, these are uh, four houses uh, within one block of, of Villa Finale. Um, these are from approximately 1970. Um, but in addition to collecting, uh, let's see, oh, I'm sorry. After Mr. Mathis finished uh, restoring Villa Finale, which he called Villa Finale because it was supposed to be his last home, he bought um, another dozen houses in the neighborhood and actually restored them also, investing his own money and time. Um, in some cases, just doing basic preservation work and then turning them over to others who were also preservation-minded. Um, so I always say, in addition to collecting houses, he also collected everything else. This is the, one of the Napoleon parlors, and I do say one of the Napoleon parlors. You can see how every surface is covered. Um, his house is packed with about 12,000 different pieces um, of fine and decorative arts, including Napoleon memorabilia. Um, and he always said it was one of the, it's the largest private collection of Napoleon memorabilia. Um, sorry. Um, anyway, uh, like I said, 12,000 pieces in a 6,000 square foot house. Um, so two pieces per square foot. Um, when I did the math that time, it scared me. But he also collected circus toys, maps, swords, cow creamers, uh, stick pins, you name it. He had 100 of them. So um, a couple room views so you could get an idea of the interior of the house because this really impacted um, what we've done. This is the kitchen. Every surface covered, again. This is a little corner in the library, every surface covered. Um, this is the pewter room, aptly named. Every surface covered. Getting a theme here. The dining room, every surface covered. Um, the green room, every surface covered. <laughs> so, back to Villa Finale. Um, when he passed away in 2005, he left it to the National Trust to become a historic house museum. And um, in about 2006, that's when the work began in earnest to process the collection um, and start planning the mission and figuring out what we were going to do with this place. Um, we're about to undertake a restoration of the building, which will uh, open to the public in 2010. So we are still essentially in the planning stages. Um, the challenges, that's Mr. Mathis, by the way. Um, you've seen the pictures. You already have an idea of what some of our challenges are. But a primary one is actually our location. Um, King William Street is a very quiet residential street, and the people who live there are very, very protective of their community, and rightfully so. They've fought really hard to restore it, and they want to protect its, its quietness. <laughs> um, the sheer density of collections, obviously, was a real problem. I mean, every room is packed, and so to even get four or five people in each room is a real challenge, not to mention trying to protect the collections, dealing with the security. Um, but I think one of the biggest things, and this is hard to talk about with our board, um, as you can imagine, but one of our biggest issues was actually that Mr. Mathis was a really well-known figure locally in San Antonio um, of his generation. But 10, 20 years from now, is he going to be a draw? You know, is somebody going to come to San Antonio and say, gee, honey, I want to go see Walter Mathis' house? Um, I, you know, I don't really see that happening. And that's, that's hard to say because he's such an important figure um, in San Antonio. He did so much. But 
you know, what we realized was if we developed this house just thinking about it as a velvet rope tour, you know, the house could just be an irrelevant curiosity. And he could seem like some eccentric old man rather than somebody who dedicated so much of his time and energy and gave so much to his, his city. So, you know, we just don't want that to happen to him. So um, we had to figure out what to do. <laughs> Um, so no velvet rope tour, and we really just thought about defining, redefining the terms that we usually use in, in a historic house. So when we thought about our mission, rather than just focusing on the historic tour, the historic house tour, um, we really wanted to uh, continue his advocacy in neighborhood preservation. Um, we plan to establish a center for neighborhood preservation where residents of San Antonio's historic districts, um, including King William, can learn to care for their homes through hands-on workshops and training, both in their neighborhoods and at Villa Finale. Um, in addition to honor the collection, we really wanted to do some, uh, we, we plan to do some collections care curriculum as well, both for private collectors but also public institutions. We also wanted to redefine our audience. Uh, rather than just focus on the tourist market, um, our primary, primary audience and means of support has to become the local community, especially residents of King William and other San Antonio neighborhoods of all economic levels. And we do believe that we will get tourist traffic and we'll prepare for them for sure. But really, to view them as our core audience, um, we realized that we'd be spending a great deal of time and energy and money to capture a one-time visitor. Um, and if we're going to be sustainable, then we have to be focused on our, our local community. Redefining our historic resource. Um, as you saw, limited access to the house. Um, so we really started thinking about the whole neighborhood as our historic site, uh, because he was involved in all of it. It wasn't just his home. So. Um, one of the things we're doing is developing cell phone tours of the neighborhood houses. Um, we're focusing on the ones that he restored first, and then we'll be adding others to it. Um, we're also working with the local preservation organization to reinvigorate and uh, revise a walking tour that they did a number, a number of years ago. But what's fun about this, though, is that our audience has also become our historic resource. Um, residents of King William have really helped us to build the museum so far. Um, they participate in our oral history program. In fact, they're the focus of it primarily. They volunteer for us, and uh, we plan on using their voices, of the voices of the homeowners, in our cell phone tours. So it really sort of, it's a, a cycle that feeds itself. Uh, we're also redefining visitor interaction. Um, at capacity, we'll only be able to serve about 35 people a day um, if, you know, on traditional tours. And so what are normally auxiliary means of, of fulfilling a mission for us are really going to become the primary means. Um, I don't have a lot of time, so I'm just going to focus on two of the biggest ones that we're working on. Um, this is our visitor center building. Because of the limited facilities at Villa Finale and because every surface and room is covered with, with uh, collections, we really don't have room there to do a whole lot. Um, so we needed a visitor center where we could do public programs, exhibits, um, and also just welcome our visitors. So we found this building in the neighborhood. It's a mid-century building, um, and we've renovated it, and it opens to the public in October. And um, not only will this, this, this center serve as a reception area for visitors to Villa Finale, but we're also positioning it as a visitor center for visitors to King William, the whole neighborhood, um, which does receive thousands of visitors on foot every year. So exhibits at the visitor center will tell the history of the neighborhood in addition to Villa Finale, um, from its founding to its current events. And we do have objects loaned from current residents on the history of the neighborhood, some fun things. Um, this is where a lot of our neighborhood preservation programs will be, the ones that aren't on site or in uh, communities. And then our museum shop is also very fun because we're going to have, in addition to traditional items, um, 
we're really focused on meeting the, the needs that, the, that are not currently met in the neighborhood. Um, we will be featuring neighborhood artists, their works on commission, um, because a lot of them don't have gallery representation, so we'll be that. Um, also selling books and periodicals that the neighborhoods, the neighbor doesn't, uh, neighbors don't have easy access to, like newspapers. Um, we don't have a whole lot of retail where we are, so we're really trying to do that as well, make this the place for neighbors to come. Um, in addition, it's free to visit this building, so you can come here, um, pick up your walking tour guide, you can learn about the neighborhood and the exhibits, you can spend money in our shop, um, and because there's no fee, we really do think that this is where we're going to be contacting most of our our, our audience here. Um, and the other main way we're really reaching visitors right now is through our website. Um, even before we're open, we're getting more visitors every day here than we will at the site. And that when I really when I did that math too, that was surprising. It really turned the way I thought about this on its ear. Um, our entire staff blogs about our activities as we're opening the museum right now, um, about, about, about the development of the site, and really just whatever we want to talk about. Um, our shop manager just did a really fun blog entry on um, his restaurant picks in response to the recent San Antonio episode of Man vs. Food on the Travel Channel. And uh, that's been very popular. We've gotten a lot of hits on that. Um, another popular entry described the day that two of our staff inventoried every single light bulb in the house, um, recording you know, its wattage, its size, if it was incandescent or if it was iridescent. You know. um, and we did the blog entry because we wanted people to show, we wanted to show people all of the little steps that you would never think you had to go through to open a museum. And that took an entire day to do that. Um, and also, we do watch the search terms that people use to find our site um, as a way to measure what visitors are looking for. And actually, <laughs> we shamelessly sometimes mention things that we know will drive traffic to our site, like, for example, the Man vs. Food episode. We've gotten a lot of hits off of that. Um, I did a recent post on the movie Away We Go, talking about uh, places there. And we've gotten a lot of hits off of that. So we do, we do manipulate that a little bit, but it works. Um, on our website, we also post a lot of videos about the projects that we're doing. And we did a number of video updates on the restoration of the visitor center itself. Um, we've done a video instruction on cleaning and numbering objects with our curator. Um, we also have a lot of mechanical collections. Like uh, we have a Violano Virtuoso, which is a player piano with double violins. You don't see a whole lot of them. Um, and since we probably won't be able to play that on every tour, we did a recording of it, and we have it on our website. And it, it is really neat. And so we've been doing a lot of those kind of things to use this as, as a way to share the collection in the house with people that you might not normally see. Um, we're going to continue to grow this. Uh, as we begin our restoration project of the house this fall, we'll be doing a number of videos, um, especially on specific projects. And we, we plan to not only post them here, but also uh, record them for the future to use as for instructional video for our hands-on preservation programs. So um, I also just wanted to mention that this website is, is free. This is using WordPress, um, so there's no free hosting, and all it costs is our staff time to do it. And this has really become one of our major interactions with the public right now. Um, but to what end? You know, we really just want to inspire visitors to think about their, their residences, their, uh, their neighborhoods, and become active participants in, in their preservation and in their development. And you know, we couldn't do that reaching 35 people a day. So we have to think so much differently about how we deliver that message. And so that's what we've been working on. Um, 
you know, we really just don't want the historic neighborhoods in San Antonio to reach the level that King William did or to help figure out a way to bring them back. And I like to close with these because it's so neat. This is next door to Villa Finale in 1970, and this is the house today. Um, this is the house across the street in 1970, and this is the house today. And this is two doors down. I love the fire escape. And this is it today. And this is uh, one block over. You can notice the porch is held up by a two-by-four there. And that's the house today. And this is all because of the investment that Mr. Mathis put into it. And we think that from that lesson, you know, if people can take that back to their communities, it'll have a great impact. So thank you. Thank you, Sandra. Um, let's see what we got now. Dennis. Uh, and now we'd like Dennis Pickerel to talk about Stenton in historic Germantown, Philadelphia. Thank you, David. Um, well, I wanted to talk um, kind of specifically about a, a, a tool we've been using to uh, uh, make our site more vibrant and to, uh, to serve our community, and that's uh, a collaboration. And I'm going to talk kind of about two things, um, the first of which is a, a collaborative educational program called History Hunters that we developed uh, with four partner sites um, that's been in existence um, oh, almost um, uh, seven years now. Uh, and that has really um, provided a model for kind of um, uh, uh, larger collaboration with some of our partner sites in Germantown as well. So I'll talk a little bit about that um, also. Uh, I'm not going to revisit all of this because David talked a little bit about it, but um, we are located in, uh, in northwest Philadelphia. And uh, uh, one of the things that really um, uh, drove the development of this program um, are some of the issues facing the Philadelphia School District. Um, the Philadelphia School District has a uh, major achievement gap uh, program, uh, problem, and uh, it's a, it's a cash-strapped uh, district, so it can't, uh, can't solve these problems quickly. So it was a problem that we thought uh, we might be able to, uh, to help with. And as David mentioned, um, we're actually located kind of at the tail end of Germantown, uh, just about three miles from Clibden. Um, so we work with them pretty regularly. Um, Germantown is a, um, a fantastic community in terms of uh, the diverse uh, number of uh, cultural and historic resources that are there. But it's not a time capsule. Um, it is a living, breathing community. And like many of areas of Philadelphia, uh, it has its own challenges. Uh, and these include things like uh, blight, um, poverty, and crime. And uh, as David mentioned, there are a number of historic houses uh, located in this kind of three-mile radius. And uh, like many historic houses, they have their own visitation, uh, their own um, uh, issues, which include uh, uh, declining visitation, um, issues of relevance in the community. As David mentioned, um, we've been seen as these kind of walled enclaves, which weren't very welcoming. Uh, and many of them are small institutions, which had uh, limited resources. So uh, taking these challenges uh, into mind, uh, we came up with this program that we call the History Hunters Youth Reporter Program. And uh, the, the basic idea is um, that um, school-age students, fourth and fifth grade students, uh, get to visit four sites in Germantown um, throughout the year uh, in a roughly chronological order that um, corresponds with the Philadelphia School District curriculum. So, for instance, they start off by going to Stenton, which is um, uh, the home of William Penn's secretary, James Logan, where they can talk about uh, the early colonial period and the relations between uh, the settlers and Native Americans. At Cliveden, they can talk about the Revolution. At Wick, we talk about uh, kind of Quaker family life in the early 19th century. And they finish up at the Johnson House, which is an underground railroad station, 
uh, where they can talk about slavery, freedom, abolition, the things that lead up to uh, the Civil War. Uh, now, there was a, a, a lengthy curriculum development phase of this project, which was um, uh, generously funded by the uh, Heritage Philadelphia program. And basically, the idea was really to look at each site's uh, strengths and capacity. So, um, you know, any of us can offer uh, educational programs or accommodate field trips. But if Stenton is just doing a program, it's really only telling the Stenton story. Um, by bringing in these four sites, we can really tell uh, a dramatic sweep of American history from uh, the colonial period uh, all the way up through the Civil War and link these sites together um, in the context of kind of the greater American story. Um, as we started talking about the logistics of this program, what it was going to require, um, scheduling, potentially accommodating 50 to 60 classes and up to 2,000 students, um, the fundraising aspects of it, it was clear that it was going to require centralized administration. Um, this wasn't the kind of thing where we could expect teachers to call four different sites or four different sites to train guides. Um, so we were going to need uh, kind of a clearinghouse, and uh, Stenton really took on the lead role in, in um, uh, coordinating the project. Um, as we developed it, we also wanted to um, tie it to uh, state and city education standards, uh, and that meant bringing in um, both humanities consultants and teachers um, as we developed the project. And they really did uh, provide some significant contributions. Um, for instance, um, the teachers made us aware that um, uh, literacy was going to be an important part of the newly revised curriculum. So, uh, you know, I mentioned History Hunter's Youth Reporter Program, where that youth reporter aspect um, really reflects um, uh, the need to include uh, literacy. And um, as I've explained, um, Germantown is, is really an at-risk community. Um, and we knew that many of the students in Philadelphia we were, we were going to be serving, and the school district did not have the cash to go on four field trips every year. So this meant we were going to have to figure out a way to, uh, to basically subsidize this program. We were going to need to pay for the bus transportation, which is about half of our annual program budget. We were going to need to provide curriculum materials. We were going to need to pay for the guides. Or, um, you know, the students weren't just going to participate in this. The teachers weren't going to be able to participate in the program. Um, many of uh, the students that are, would be coming to us uh, are, are minority students. Um, so it was important that we were looking at history from multiple perspectives, um, um, telling stories that were relevant to them. And um, uh, one of the things that came out of it uh, was the production of uh, creative uh, curriculum materials that really reinforced this. We didn't just want this to be a field trip. Um, so an 80-page workbook was developed that's distributed to uh, all the participating classes and students. And this includes um, pre- and post-visit activities um, uh, that, again, really uh, set the context for the visit and, uh, and reinforce that uh, visit afterwards. Uh, one of these activities and this gets back to the, uh, the youth reporter aspect and, and literacy, um, is um, we expect the students to really kind of act as reporters during these visits. Um, so they're taking notes, and they take that back to the classroom, and they're expected to produce some kind of creative writing assignment. Uh, this could be a news story. This could be a poem. We've had classes do books, do podcasts, um, all these kinds of things. And then we have a website called historyhunters.org, um, where all of these activities are posted so the children can go back and really kind of see um, the fruits of their labors. So um, just to kind of sum up, you know, this is what came out of this program, uh, a number of, of lessons and, and a number of things um, that we're able to apply now um, to some things that we're trying to do. 
Um, number one, this program really forced us to stretch our site capacity. Um, Stenton, for instance, went from being a site that um, uh, had about 2,500 visitors a year to adding an additional 2,000 people every year just in the number of students. Um, in the last seven years, we have um, provided the program for free to about 10,000 underserved students. Um, we've been able to uh, standardize educational programming um, in this instance among the sites. Again, this is not individual sites offering programs, but this is a, a whole program that has been developed with the specific curriculum that is implemented at each site. Um, administration and the calendar was, it was an interesting um, uh, experience. Um, this was the first time, really, that these sites um, had been asked um, to give up control of something. Um, we were basically asking three other sites to say, hey, take a leap of faith. We're going to have, um, you know, this centralized administration process. Uh, we're going to have an online calendar. We're going to have one project coordinator, um, and we're going to make it work, um, and we did. Um, staffing is, is one of the uh, uh, great things that came out of it. Um, to implement this program, we have a guide core, which they're really ed educators. Um, they receive intensive training at each site and training before the program starts. Um, so it's not a staff at each site, but it, they're actually program staff who implement the program at each site. And out of that, um, they've sort of evolved into a greater Germantown guide corps. So they're able to work at other sites as interpreters, as a kind of multi-purpose staff is needed. And then uh, fundraising is a, is a big area. The, the program costs about $60,000 annually to run, and we've raised more than $1.3 million in the last seven years. Keep in mind, we're, we're a site um, that operates on a budget of $200,000. Um, this includes a $300,000 NEH We the People Challenge grant, and uh, there were five awardees in our grant round, and those included Harvard and Colonial Williamsburg, so we think that's a pretty good success story. Um, but most importantly, this really provided a model for, you know, what we could do. I mentioned those 14 historic sites um, in the area. Well, if we can do this with, with four historic sites, obviously there's a much greater opportunity with 14. And uh, you can see them listed here. Um, they're very diverse. They range from uh, historic cemeteries to an arboretum, an art museum, um, an underground railroad station, a Victorian mansion, um, and on and on and on. Uh, individually, again, just 15 sites, an average of a uh, budget of about $200,000 or significantly less in many cases. Um, in many cases, fewer than 5,000 visitors per year and uh, really a limited ability to attract resources. But, uh, but together, as a consortium, uh, we have about $2.5 million in expenditures, serve over 60,000 visitors annually, and really contribute uh, significantly to the community. We much have a much louder voice as a consortium um, than we do individually. So what makes this consortium special, you might ask? Um, you know, there are many consortiums that are out there. Um, most of them are are doing uh, something in the way of joint marketing. We feel like this consortium is um, unique in its, uh, I think, its intensity and its breadth and the number of goals we're trying to accomplish. Um, uh, first and foremost um, is community engagement, some of the things that David talked about. Uh, we want uh, this consortium to step into what we see as a leadership vacuum in our community. Uh, we want to be much more than historic house museums. And our ultimate goal is really to contribute to the revitalization of our community. Uh, in doing this. And so this means partnering with, you know, local CDCs, um, uh, with, you know, a business improvement district uh, organizations, this kind of thing um, to make this happen. 
Uh, we want to do a better job of telling our stories, which has uh, been a lot of, uh, you know, that History Hunters really, really reflects that. Um, we collaborate very closely on programming. We have a program director um, who oversees kind of a master calendar and uh, orchestrates a, a planning process for us and really looks for opportunities um, to work together. Uh, marketing strategy, obviously, we want to market ourselves, not just for heritage tourism reasons, but um, you want to, we want to market ourselves to our community and market our community um, uh, to the outside um, as well. And then developing our organization. You know, we want this um, to be a sustainable organization, um, and, uh, you know, we want it to be one um, that really helps our site by taking advantage of economies of scale, looking at joint insurance opportunities, uh, sharing other administrative costs, sharing staffing, these kinds of things. We want uh, this organization to be one that um, provides services to its members. So um, you might ask, how are we doing this? Um, well, um, in the last couple of years, we received about $380,000 um, from the Heritage Philadelphia program of the Pew Charitable Trust for a planning project and uh, now an implementation phase um, <clears throat> that we're currently in the midst of. And I'll just kind of quickly summarize the planning project. Um, again, that, in, that kind of addressed those four areas. Um, um, again, um, looking at what kind of structure was acceptable to the members, um, developing interpretive themes, unified interpretive themes, way to, ways to talk about Germantown, um, developing a marketing plan and going through a branding process. And then uh, the community engagement aspect, which um, was really enlightening for us. We had a number of uh, focus groups um, that represented kind of a cross-section of the community, you know, religious group, groups, youth, seniors. And then uh, that kind of, we had those smaller focus groups, and then it kind of culminated in a larger um, gathering in the uh, form of an ice cream social. And we really asked um, our community members, you know, how do you see the community? What are the community problems? And what do you, how do you think the historic sites can help address those problems? So what does this mean in practice? Um, uh, we're not merging yet. Um, we still uh, have our individual site identities. But we've made a lot of progress. Um, we, uh, we launched our new brand last year. We now have a, a web presence, which is freedomsbackyard.com. Uh, brochures. We'll be putting banners on Germantown Avenue that reflect this new logo. Um, we've already gotten some great feedback from some of the community groups um, who like the logo and, and we'll be using the color scheme and, and some of their own banners. Um, we have regular meetings of our, uh, of our HG um, uh, staff members and educators. This kind of sound like, sounds like a no-brainer. But uh, once a month, we get together. We talk about uh, what's going on with the larger consortium, you know, what's coming up. Um, we talk about uh, any issues um, that are, are coming up with our member sites. And, uh, and that, that's really kind of our working group. Um, we also have educators that meet, a board that now oversees um, what we're doing. Program planning continues to be a really important thrust. Um, of, of uh, how we're accomplishing uh, things. Again, we have a program director who helps with that. And shared staffing um, is a reality now. We have this guide core. Uh, Stenton shares its curator with a nearby site. Um, we also have a shared program assistant um, with Historic Germantown. So I'll just kind of quickly wrap up here um, about some upcoming things. Um, we're currently, uh, again, in this implementation phase, which we call Germantown Works, which is funded by a $200,000 grant from, from uh, the Heritage Philadelphia program. But um, that's really going to address some of these uh, community partnership issues. Um, we're going to be doing some live partnerships with Temple University. 
and the Germantown Historical Society, bringing in students to actively participate uh, in the programs and in the development of these programs, and hopefully uh, maybe training the next generation of some public historians, and really telling the 20th century story of Germantown, um, especially the African-American um, story, which is one that we don't do so well um, as a group of sites. Um, and I'll just, this is my last slide here. Um, again, we want to, you know, really continue to, um, to enhance uh, cooperation. Community-based partnerships, um, a great example of that is a, a festival that we put on last spring and is now going to become an, an annual festival. Kind of coincides with our opening day, but we decided to take a flavor of all our sites to a park located in the middle of Germantown. Instead of always asking people to come to, to us, we took this to the park. Uh, we had music and food that celebrated the history of the community. But the important thing about this is that it attracted the interest and funding of a local CDC and one of our state representatives. So it shows the power of, of, of what looking to community needs um, uh, can do for your site. Um, and I'll just kind of wrap up there because I think I'm probably over. So. <clears throat> Thank you, Dennis. And uh, thanks for talking about the cool place where I live. Uh, and now Jim Kern with a C, uh, DVD, or excuse me, a PowerPoint simply entitled The Flood. I'm from Iowa, where it was pointed out to me this morning, uh, one of our senators unfortunately identified Obama's health plan as pulling the plug on Grandma. Uh, the good news is uh, every state gets two senators. And uh, uh, our second one is uh, uh, not quite so much shooting from the hip. Uh, David referenced the fact that uh, I've also been an actor. Uh, about 15 years ago, I had the good fortune of playing Harold Hill in The Music Man. And uh, uh, on June 13th of last year, uh, when the water crested in Cedar Rapids, I couldn't help but think of one of the opening songs by Harold Hill, Well, You Got Trouble, <laughs> right here in River City. Uh, and, uh, uh, and so today I want to talk to you a little bit about what uh, Bruce Moore's response was to a disaster that is second only to Hurricane Tr Katrina in terms of its scope and its cost uh, and its devastation. Um, I'm really proud of the fact that Bruce Moore is featured on the cover of the um, most circulated and uh, widely read uh, issue of the Forum Journal, uh, and the fact that uh, David's article about the next Cliveden and my article about Bruce Moore are uh, two of the signature articles in that issue. I'm not here to talk to you about what Bruce Moore is doing today or what we have been doing uh, since becoming a National Trust property in 1981. I'm talk talking today more about uh, getting ready to do what we've been doing in the last year out of necessity because of the widespread devastation of the flood. Before and during and yet today, we operate as a, a, a site with a dual mission, as a house museum and a community cultural center. Uh, and we've been doing that since 1981. 
Uh, we've also been uh, collaborating since 1981. We've been partnering in economic development. We've uh, been uh, partnering in neighborhood development. We've been partnering in educational development. We've been partnered with virtually every uh, cultural organization in the community. Now, we were doing that because it was the right thing to do. Little did we know that it was accumulating toward what would happen to our city and uh, to our site uh, last year. We had been for a long, long time a model of preservation in the community. Whenever anybody talked about historic preservation, they almost invariably talked about what either had been torn down in the 1960s or they talked about uh, the value of preservation, look at Bruce Moore as the model and look at it as the example. We had been showing the community how to uh, preserve and restore and conserve in responsible and steward-like steward ways uh, since 1981 with the guidance and the support of the National Trust for Historic Preservation. As a community cultural center, uh, we seize an opportunity of being a large site in the middle of uh, 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 metropolitan area. We're 26 acres and nine buildings right on Highway 151 that runs through the middle of Cedar Rapids. As such, we act very much like Central Park. Uh, we host theater, we host music, we hosted the Joffrey Ballet, for heaven's sake, on our First Avenue lawn, and that's only a small portion of our site. Uh, so we had been doing that for some time. Fourteen years ago, we uh, founded our signature event, the Classics at Bruce Moore, which is outdoor theater. Uh, we operate throughout the summer very much like the Ravinia Festival uh, in suburban Chicago. For 28 years, we had been positioning ourselves to serve a leadership role in the community. Uh, for our stewardship, our community leadership, our collaborations, our partnerships, economic development, we had, from the very beginning, sound board oversight, strategic planning, mission-driven programming, and ever since uh, 1994, uh, when our uh, separate endowment, separate from the National Trust endowment, uh, was established, we had had financial stability and fiscal prudence. And then all of this I mentioned in reference to what happened on June 13, 2008. This is a, a very full slide, and I'll give you a few moments to, uh, to absorb it all. How many of you recall watching the news last June and seeing what was happening in our community? Uh, it was pretty remarkable. Uh, the, the water crested on a Friday, June 13th. Uh, on Tuesday evening, I had gone down to the river just to see how it was going. Uh, they kept changing the, the crest predictions. Uh, the prediction started at 21 feet, and then 22 feet, then it was 24 and a half feet, then it was 27 feet. And I recall a conversation with Gail Naughton, who is the executive director of the National Czech and Slovak Museum, which sits right on the river's shore. Uh, and she said that they had been moving all of their objects, artifacts, exhibition materials up. Uh, to what the Army Corps of Engineers had told them was uh, 24 and a half feet. And they said, you yeah, know, let's play it safe. We'll go to 27. Uh, and that wasn't enough. Uh, all of the measuring devices broke 24 hours before the crest. Uh, and so 
the water just kept coming and coming and coming. Not only did the river rise, but it brought with it the rapids. Uh, it was uh, quickly moving water through the buildings, blowing out doors, uh, bringing uh, underwater or underground tanks to uh, uh, to above the surface, and then washing them downstream and crashing them into buildings. Uh, the devastation was enormous. Uh, more than 18,000 people uh, were in the impacted areas. Uh, 120 families uh, were receiving Section 8 housing assistance. Jobs lost, uh, daycare providers, and and the thousands of children affected by that. Property, seven, almost 7,200 parcels of property. Uh, over 5,000 of them were residential pro uh, parcels. 2.4 billion estimated cost and damage to public infrastructure. Nearly every one of the city's buildings uh, was flooded. Every one of the county's buildings, administrative buildings, was flooded. The state building was flooded, and so was the federal courthouse. In essence, uh, bureaucracy ground to a halt. Uh, and uh, it was remarkable uh, when you look at that number, and this is an old number. The number is now over $3 billion just in uh, government infrastructure. Uh, as many as 1,500 properties will be demolished. We're now 15 months past the disaster. And I can tell you, uh, most people in Cedar Rapids can give you a great lesson on how slowly bureaucracy works. 15 months later, and we have uh, uh, only resolved about one-third of the housing parcels in terms of allowing people to either move back and rebuild or to move on and abandon or to demolish or to pick up a house, a building, and move it from wet side to green or to uh, uh, a dry side of the proposed levees. Uh, we were told uh, at the height of the flood that it would be a 10-year at minimum recovery process. Well, Another one of the songs in uh, Music Man is called Iowa Stubborn. And, and we said, oh, that's not Iowa. We're too doggone stubborn for that to happen. We'll get her done in five years. It's going to be 10 years. Minimum, it's going to be uh, probably closer to 15 years. Uh, on the amazing thing about the flood, there was not one death. Historic and cultural resources. Uh, in the 10-mile swath of flood right through the heart of the city, 150 historic properties, including the entire Bohemian Commercial District, the Czech Village Commercial District, Mays Island. We were the only city in the world that had city government on an island in the middle of its city. Uh, we're think rethinking that uh, uh, right now. The P historic Paramount Theater, the historic Iowa Theater. Uh, Lewis Sullivan's People's Bank, the Mother Mosque, Iowa Building, the Hotel Roosevelt, among them. Every museum except Bruce Moore, the Grant Wood Home and Studio, and the History Center was flooded. Every performing arts venue not owned by the school system was flooded. Every performing arts and visual arts organization was displaced. Uh, or somehow uh, completely compromised in its ability to carry on its mission. You see some of the listing there, and the list keeps going. In fact, uh, one of the uh, 
facilities identified on the screen, uh, Usher's Ferry, uh, the director of that is with us today. Uh, Teresa White is right back there, and I think she can echo many of the sentiments of uh, what I'm talking about, what happened in our community. So what did Bruce Moore do? Uh, this this image that you see of uh, the multi-peaked building is the National Czech and Slovak Museum. Uh, and the floodwaters went through it to uh, a level of nearly 11 feet uh, inside this one-story building. Uh, Bruce Moore became the primary communication hub for the Preservation and Cultural Institutions Network at the local, state, and federal level. Before the water started to fall, uh, I made phone calls to the National Trust, and uh, Jim and Janet Vaughn uh, were incredibly helpful in getting me organized and getting me to uh, wrap my arms and Bruce Moore's arms around the magnitude of uh, this disaster. Our staff uh, left the office and went down and sandbagged. They helped to haul artifacts. Uh, to do what we could to uh, uh, lessen the disaster. Immediately after, our, our response, because we were about all that was left, uh, that we were high and dry and safe and sound, we felt an obligation to assist wherever we could in the community. So we continued to be that communication hub and to pull in resources from around the country uh, to physically show up and help uh, or to email help, uh, to telephone certain individuals. We were keeping a master list that grew to 12 pages, single-spaced, of contacts around the country of people who could help with specific problems. We walked door-to-door -door through the affected neighborhoods with flyers. Uh, and set up uh, educational programs at the neighborhood subs of the affected neighborhoods. One of the things we discovered, and I think the rest of the world needs to remember, is in a disaster like this, email and Internet doesn't mean anything. You can't get to it. Uh, and the thousands of people who were wanting answers were so frustrated to hear, well, we have all of that on our website. They couldn't get to it. They couldn't even turn on the lights. Uh, we became a, uh, a store of sorts for museum supplies that were donated from around the state and around the region. Uh, and then Office Max and Staples uh, brought a truck to Bruce Moore full of office supplies, uh, and we became a distribution site for those things. We accommodated our cultural partners throughout the city by providing them space for events and meetings and programs, and we continued to represent Cedar Rapids uh, at the local, state, and federal levels, uh, still pleading our cause for help. Did I mention that this is a, a more than $5 billion disaster? Uh, the unfortunate thing is so far we have, and Teresa can correct me if I'm wrong here, but the grand total of money that has come to the city is under $350 million. So we're st one of the reasons I am here today is to plead with you uh, to have your legislators remind others of the need in Cedar Rapids. One of the things I'm really proud of is that <clears throat> our local councilman, uh, Brian Fagan, took the time out of his schedule to send a letter of gratitude to Richard Moe, president of the National Trust. 
we were never out looking for a pat on the back or anything more than just uh, uh, a willingness to help out where, where it was needed. Uh, and to hear, um, and this is a portion of a three-page letter that, that Mr. Fagan sent, um, just to read the last part of it. Working closely with our parent organization, the National Trust for Historic Pres... Oh, I'm sorry, I'm on the wrong slide. This is something I said. Never mind. <laughs> uh, I'll come to that letter in just a moment. Immediately after the response was, uh, you saw a slide about uh, the classics at Bruce Moore. We were supposed to do Lysistrata last year, and we said, we're not doing Lysistrata, that's stupid. Uh, and not to mention the fact that half of the cast could not uh, participate because their homes had been flooded or they lost their jobs. Uh, and so, 24 hours after dropping that show, we uh, uh, pulled together six organizations and said, uh, this is a classic epic event and we're going to commemorate it the best way we know how. We put together a show called Moving Home and it garnered us tremendous uh, um, uh, accolades for the collaborative spirit. Here's Brian Fagan's letter. Uh, the last paragraph. If there ever was an entity that deserves special recognition to be, uh, for its behavior and conduct in the wake of an unprecedented natural disaster, that entity is Bruce Moore, its staff, and the Board of Trustees. For the work they performed, the hope they inspired, the spirit they represented, and the voice they gave to so many in our community in the most challenging of times. We didn't look for awards. We didn't look for the pats on the back. We did what we think any good citizen would do. Uh, you help out your neighbors. Uh, it was gratifying to, to receive that, that uh, uh, form of, of uh, appreciation. So when you, when you step up to the community's plate, sometimes the community responds in unanticipated ways. Our membership increased by 20%. Who would have thought? We, we certainly didn't. Uh, new patrons and new audiences because of the collaborations. Visitor, or visitation increased. Uh, grants doubled. Collaborations with 44 different organizations in 08, 45, and 09 regional awards, and in com increased community regard for Bruce Moore. What we continue to do is connect all of the dots as best we can uh, with the National Trust and with the uh, SHPO and other organizations. We continue to be at the table, we continue to collaborate, and we continue to serve the community. <clears throat> Last June, I said to a, a hastily called staff meeting, if we're going to call ourselves the community's home, then we're obligated to prove our value in ways that extend well beyond our state admission. I also made that statement to the city council as we were talking about how Bruce Moore could assist the community uh, in the aftermath of the flood. It's not in our mission to do flood recovery, but it is in our mission to help our community. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. I'd like to turn it over now to George McDaniel, and in a little bit we'll uh, turn on a video. Good. Thank you so much, David. Uh, several things, just some points that, I, that I've heard that I want to echo in my presentation. One is if the, if the neighborhood fails um, you know, and Clevedon, quote, wins, 
that's not so. Cleveland will lose, and I think that's true for so many of our historic house museums. And then um, Sandra made the point that the neighborhood, looking at the neighbor, our neighborhoods as a, as, a, as a historic site or our region. And then last, in terms of the flood, it's, it's, it's how, how do we help our community? How do we respond as historic uh, sites to situations um, in, our, uh, in our communities and be proactive uh, in, in, in that regard? <clears throat> I'm going to be talking specifically about campaigning for the future of a place focusing on the Ashley River a region, which is just outside of Charleston, South Carolina, where Drayton Hall is located. Um, my key points, and, I'm, I've, and I'm, I've, you've heard this before, start preservation is not so much about the past, but it's about the future. And so often historic house museums focus on the past, but not on the future of their communities. And in this specific uh, presentation, I'm going to talk about the threats to our environs. Whether you're in an urban area or a rural area, the environs shape so much of the visitor's experience. And you've seen that in, this, in the discussion from Cliveden and from Stanton. Um, and in depth, I'm going to talk about a campaign against a mega development named Watson Hill just up the road from us. And then last, I'm going to talk about how to combine, how to tell this story of your community engagement to your visitors, to your on-site audiences, as well as to off-site audiences, and how to impart to them an ethic of place. How do you get, how do you get them to care? Keys to community engagement, you've got to step up. And you've heard this uh, from, other, uh, from the other presenters, individuals and organizations. Also, your actions need to be grounded in a strategic plan, vision, mission, and goals. And now, last strategic plan that John Durrell helped us with. The second goal um, was to preserve the Ashley River region as a place where history and harmony, history and nature uh, worked in harmony. Support of the board, staff, and membership, synergy uh, between the institution and your community, and bridge building. In all of our work with historic museums, we've got to build bridges, and for bridge to be successful, it's got to be grounded on both sides. It's got to be grounded within your own mission, but also it's got to be grounded in the interests of the community that you're serving. Drayton Hall's mission, <clears throat> you can see preserve and interpret Drayton Hall and its environs. Why? To educate the public and inspire them to embrace historic preservation. Well, why are our environs so important? This is the Charleston region. Let's see. This is the, this is the Charleston region. This is the peninsula of Charleston. This is the Cooper River. This is the Ashley River. For those of you who visited Charleston and seen the uh, Charleston Harbor, you may have heard some Charlestonians say that the Cooper and the Ashley come together in, the, in Charleston at Charleston Harbor to form the headwaters of the Atlantic Ocean. So here you're seeing the headwaters of the Atlantic Ocean, just for those to let you know. This is the Ashley River coming up this way. You can see the amount of development here uh, and then coming up west of the Ashley, but notice this green space. This is over 100,000 acres of green space. And notice this little spot right there where, these sub where those subdivisions end, and that is Drayton Hall. So we literally stand as a bulwark against suburban sprawl coming up from Charleston and coming down um, uh, from over. So literally the question that I'm going to be talking about is what's going to be the future of these woodlands that you see and the historic and natural resources that they possess. 
Well, this threat to the environs isn't unique to, uh, to the Astro River region. Mount Vernon has faced threats to its uh, viewshed across the Potomac. Mount Ver uh, Monticello just recently purchased uh, Mount Aldo for, uh, from development. Uh, a glaring example of intrusion into environs is the Petroglyph National Monument in, in Albuquerque, which dates to 1000 BC with petroglyphs going up into fairly recent times. And here you can see both the prehistoric as well as the historic petroglyphs that have been carved by Native Americans and by uh, uh, settlers passing through. As you ascend the canyon walls, look to the west, that's your view. As you look to the east, that's what you see. All suburban sprawl from, um, from Albuquerque. So imagine the impact on the visitor's experience and the interpretation of that site. Community engagement, what's involved? Well, first of all, for our case, it builds on decades of work, and I think that you've seen that from other presentations. But our community was divided between the pro-growth and the managed growth fa uh, of factions, with the pro-growth of faction very much in control. We were very much the, the, the odd, odd, odd folks out uh, in that rural part of the county because they were looking for growth and the jobs that it would bring. That was their view. We'd won some battles, but the campaign was still on. The Ashley River uh, region itself, as it says, just outside of Charleston, this is the Ashley River. There's a wonderful and re remarkable concentration of historical resources along the Ashley River and the Ashley River Road that parallels it. One is a state park dating from the 1690s. Another is Middleton Place with the oldest formerly landscape gardens in America just up the river from us. Magnolia next door to us was the original home of the Drayton family. And of course, Drayton Hall itself, now a site of the National Trust, founded in 1738, owned by seven succeeding generations of the Drayton family, where a site that's been, quote, preserved, not restored to a particular period, as you can see at the landscape. It's more than just a, a site to visit for, uh, for, for standard tours. We're also actively engaged in, for, in commemorations. This is Charles Drayton, uh, the last owner of Drayton Hall, and his daughter with descendants from the enslaved community for memorial services that we had. Also, we're active engaged, actively engaged in, in education. The Ashley River Road uh, is now a National Scenic Byway, and the Ashley River is a state scenic river. But all these resources are being hammered by the explosive growth in the area. In 1991, shown in yellow, this was the extent of urban growth. 202 miles of impervious surface. That's what was uh, measured here, with, again, with, the, uh, with, with Drayton Hall just up in this area, just area just at the very tip up there. Twelve years from now, this is what's forecast, with the amount of impervious surface tripled uh, in the amount, and again, the, the, this, if this comes true, the Ashley River would be engulfed by this urban sprawl. The major threat that this region faced was Watson Hill, and it's emblematic of a lot of campaigns for regional conservation. This is Drayton Hall, consisting of about 660 acres uh, down the Ashley River. This is Watson Hill, which had been owned by a timber company, Midwest Vaco, consisting of 6,600 6, acres, 10 times larger uh, than uh, Drayton Hall. The proposal, after it, when it was sold in July of 2004, called for cookie-cutter sprawl, 4,500 to 5,000 homes, 
hotels, golf courses. It was going to force an expressway to come up through those woodlands that you saw. It would forever change the region. As one person declared, asphalt is the last crop. Just to give you some sense of the scale of that threat, um, 10 square miles extends um, from the beginning of Central Park here all the way down to the tip of Manhattan. Um, and, excuse me, whoops, wait, let me go back, whoops. That's what, yeah. Okay, engaging the, the community. Um, these were the uh, different, the things that we had to do. We, with it, we had to have our board support. Within the divided community, we allied with a range of organizations. We've got to step beyond ourselves. Uh, local organizations, local political leaders, national organizations, taxpayer, and the hook and bullet crowd. Those are, those are hunters and fishermen. In other words, you're looking, looking for allies. You've got to find ways to, to make your message plain and simple. We did that through these, uh, through these road signs. Regardless of one's ideology, they got stuck in traffic. We computed the number of cars that would be, that, that development would, would produce. That was the number. We also engaged in, in, in press conferences. And we, we were lucky to find a, a range of press support. Um, and we also turned out for, commute for public hearings. Now, also, the opposition, mind you, is bringing their forces, too. So these were very hot uh, political hearings that were, that were being held. I'm shortening this campaign because it lasted over four years. The good news is in 2007, we did pass an ordinance limiting development in the historic uh, district to one unit per four net acres, uh, which if you translated that would call for only 825 units to be built within Watson Hill. They, got, they were getting around that by other means I'm not going to go into, but we tied them up in court until 2009. And then in January 2009, we got the great news. They went into foreclosure. The developers were closed on. And then in June 2009, the timber company that had initially sold it, um, uh, sold, sold Watson Hill, repurchased um, the, uh, the landscape, re repurchased the land. So we had a wonderful victory. Um, we weighed in on public uh, hearings, and the result of our public hearings was that we held these in, in July, public weighed in, and they said we've got to preserve the Ashley River. We've got to preserve the region. So now, while before we had been outgunned, now the political tides um, have shifted much more in our favor. So we've won a remarkable victory. These are, the, these are some of the slides. Um, but uh, the community downsides, though, to community engagement. It does take a lot of time. It's a long-term investment. Uh, just me distraction from your site. Took up a lot of my time, a lot of staff time. And you've also got to be aware of mission creep. That's why I go back earlier to your strategic plan to be sure that you're well-grounded in what you're doing. The upsides, of course, the mission fulfillment. We did stop that development. We enhanced the visitor's experience. And as you found, um, as you heard from uh, Bruce Moore, we found new, force, new, new sources of, uh, of support. And the final question I have is how then to convey this information uh, of your site uh, uh, to uh, off-site uh, audiences, and how do you uh, use it on-site? 
Offsite, we've just produced a, a case study uh, for the National Trust uh, on this victory. And then locally, we, for on-site, we have now produced a DVD that we partnered with the History Channel to produce that's a tour of the landscape. It's an interactive tour of the landscape station to station. Watson Hill, when we produced this, had not been won. And this is a site-based program, so it was, does not, it, it began, this particular station is on the river, and the viewer takes the DVD player and goes from station to station. So while one is at the Ashley River, I'm going to play you now the, the station that they um, hear, not Watson Hill, but it combines history and preservation. That's the point, combining both. Let's, let's hope it's going to work. This is at the Ashley River. There we go, good. You're looking at a river that shaped the history of South Carolina. It's just a short river beginning only about 30 miles inland. But for centuries, it served as a major highway connecting settlements in the interior to the coast. Had you been standing on the Ashley's banks 500 years ago, you would have seen Native Americans in dugout canoes coursing through these waters. 200 years ago, there were boats bringing crops, supplies, and passengers to the plantations that lined both sides of the river. Today, the trading ships are gone, but the Ashley remains a defining element of Drayton Hall's identity. The Ashley River is tidal and actually a mix of salt and fresh water here, so it's too brackish to be used for drinking or for irrigating fields. But this mix of salt and fresh water makes for a remarkably rich habitat. You find a range of fish here. That's what makes it so fascinating. Uh, you have freshwater fish like bluegill brim and largemouth bass, along with saltwater fish like a spot-tailed bass, flounder, sea trout, mullet, and shrimp. You have blue crab. Uh, and along the banks, you also have fiddler crabs. In warm weather, you can see bottlenose dolphins swimming up and down the river. And also in warm weather, you may see floats out in the river marking the location of crab traps for the blue crabs. The view ahead of you hasn't always been this peaceful. Throughout the 1970s and 80s, speedboats and jet skis raced up and down the Ashley quickly eroding its fragile banks. Before World War II started, we used to come around here almost every weekend and shoot cans on the riverbank. And at that time, where the two oak trees are right at the end of the walkway, you could walk 20, 30 feet beyond them, and there was a bank. But now, the bank is gone. And why? 
because after World War II, boat traffic became a big hobby, and lots of boats came by, and the wake from those boats gradually eroded the bank. To halt this erosion, the near rock revetment was installed in the early 1980s, and the far one in the early 1990s, thanks to the U.S. Corps of Engineers and a generous donor, Miss Sally Reard. But you can see how much was lost in just 10 years. Also to halt the erosion of the riverbank, we worked with the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources to have installed no boat wake signs here that cause boats to slow down so that both diminishes the boat wakes as well as diminishes the noise pollution that occur from these racing jet skis that used to go up and down this river. Preservation is often more about what you don't see than about what you do see. And the Ashley River uh, is a case in point because there are a range of things here that could have happened and that you don't see thanks to historic preservation efforts. One is the land directly across the river from us. About 10 years ago, that was offered to us for sale. And fortunately, thanks to a donor, Miss Marion Kennedy of Cincinnati and 1,000 donors from across the nation, we were able to buy that land. It's zoned at 22 units per acre. And had we not been able to buy that property, we would be looking at townhouses and apartments where you now see forests. The second example is a result of a partnership with the city of North Charleston. We work with them to secure passage of an ordinance requiring a 100-foot vegetative buffer. So you see that tree line just behind the marsh, but directly behind that are 250 townhouses. So imagine the viewscape that you would see if we did not have that ordinance in place or buy the land. I remember when I first came to Drayton Hall and I saw the Ashley River and it was quiet at that time and I was able to connect with history not only Drayton Hall, but with Middleton Place and the Ashley River, because it was quiet. If you have speedboats, if we're looking at townhouses, it's hard to connect with the heritage of America. But we look at this landscape today, and in our own mind's eye, we can imagine the people and events of the past and connect with them, include them in our lives in ways that otherwise are hard to do. You can continue the tour by walking down to the alley. So you see what we were trying to do is combine both the history of the river and also the story of its preservation, with historic preservation, as I said, being so much about what you don't see. And so that's why we wanted to let visitors know that behind-the-scenes stories and also the way we were able to engage with the community in order to preserve that river uh, in the form that you see it today. So thank you very much.
So I just, uh, if we have any questions, I just wanted to reinforce the idea that you can see from our panelists that the work we're doing suggests that historic sites can provide a lot of life in their communities and that uh, historic houses are not dead yet. So thank you very much for all your time, and we're happy to take some questions. It's also very good to end on some good news, isn't it? Please, the woman from Cedar Rapids, absolutely. <laughs> but, you know, sometimes we focus on the science and we focus on the programs, but in fact, we're institutions and we have to focus on the leadership. And, that, uh, and there are times when our community really needs it. Please. I have a very And the evaluations from the teachers really are prescriptive. And in fact, many of the, the uh, hands-on activities have changed year to year because of the excellent suggestions of what works and what doesn't. Good idea. Uh, and thank you. Uh, also, uh, our experience has been that funders are extremely interested not only in the revisioning, uh, especially with the, the support and enthusiasm of boards and staff, but also in collaboration. And the partnerships have found a lot of interest among the funding community. And Dennis shared with you some of the support we've had from Heritage Philadelphia Program of Pew Charitable Trusts. They want us to succeed. And uh, if we can give them some opportunities to help us, they've been extremely gracious. Well, the message is if the contacts around us fail, we can't possibly win. And, uh, and I hope you'll take that back to your own communities and put yourself in the rightful places of helping them. We also hope that you'll fill out the evaluation forms because these become very helpful as we try to take this message out to other sites. We've kept you too long. We hope you have a wonderful rest of the day in Indianapolis. Thanks very much.